Welcome to the Six Hats podcast, where I, Dr. Shani, a lifestyle and nutritional medicine family doctor, will talk about how women strive to find balance each day by juggling their six roles, being a woman, mother, daughter, partner, business owner, and professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Six Hats podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have Dr. Rachel Brown join us from the UK. Now, Rachel is a consultant psychiatrist, and that's right, you heard it correctly. She's a consultant psychiatrist who specializes in metabolic health. She graduated from Edinburgh University in 2003 and has worked in psychiatry since 2004. She's a nutrition network advisor and certified functional medicine practitioner. She also holds a master's in medical law and ethics and is involved in ongoing research into ketogenic diets and mental disorder. And she's the author of the book, Metabolic Madness, which you all must get. So welcome, Rachel. Oh, hi, Shami. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Rachel, as always, I'm just so curious and I'd love to start with your story. It is so unusual to have psychiatrists actually think about nutrition when it comes to mental health. So how did that come about for you? What journey led you down the nutrition path? Oh gosh, I think it's really been my personal journey. So I've just had a fascination with nutrition for as long as I can remember, really. And from a personal point of view, it's been quite a journey over the years. And I've tried out all sorts of different dietary modalities myself. And probably for the last 20 years, I've been really heavy, heavily into the low carb scene and strayed from it at points. But over the years, it's just gradually transformed from a paleo diet that I followed into a ketogenic diet. And then I ended up training with Dr. Georgia Ede, who people will be very familiar with, who's been a real trailblazer in terms of the area of nutritional psychiatry or metabolic psychiatry that it tends to be referred to quite often these days. And I've had so much contact with people on social media since I published my book last year and I've spoken in various forums and so on and just the transformation stories that people have told me have been incredibly impressive. So people are recovering from major mental illness and sometimes decades of and decades of symptoms who'd been through all the usual standard treatment protocols and so on without much success. And yet when they changed their diet, everything transformed for them. So that's a plotted summary. (laughs) Yeah, no, that is so awesome. Because I see it from a GP point of view. I trained in the UK and went through all the training. And it's literally only 10 years ago, I actually talked about nutrition and mental health because it was very much transactional. It's quick. You come in, literally the first thing you think about is a drug rather than looking at lifestyle or even what are they eating. And then you just end up going up and down and changing drugs. And there's so much you can do. And that's when 10 years ago went down the nutrition path. And there's actually a lot you can do even before medication, especially with a common anxiety and depression. So Rachel, I'd love for you to talk about like, what would you say the top five nutrients are when it comes to mental health? Okay. So so I knew you were going to ask me this and I, I probably struggle to stick to five. To be <laughs> there's just there's so many. Oh gosh. So the B vitamins are absolutely essential and, and a huge play a huge part in mental health, which is interesting because I'm just touching on what you said there about how we tend to be trained traditionally. And it does tend to be about making a diagnosis and prescribing a medication. And in the battery of tests that I might do as a mainstream psychiatrist, you might check a B12 level for somebody for example. But there are a whole host of other B vitamins as well that are all crucial in terms of 
and manufacturing of neurotransmitters. If you have deficiencies uh, such as B6, for example, but any of them really, you can end up presenting with symptoms of depression or dementia or all sorts of different mental health presentations. So if I was being really lazy, I'd um, mention each one by name, but actually, <laughs> yeah, I think actually all the B vitamins are just equally important mm -hmm. as each other. And uh, there was a really interesting book I've been enjoying reading recently in relation to niacin or B3. And um, when you start to look into orthomolecular medicine and practices of, um, I think it was a Canadian psychiatrist from a number of decades ago, they were having a lot of success using high doses of vitamin B3 for people with psychosis and people who may attract a diagnosis of schizophrenia. But essentially, they're water-soluble vitamins and essential for everyone. And of course, you can end up with slight genetic differences. So things that we call SNPs, where some people might have higher requirements for certain B vitamins than others, just because of the way they're, they're sort of programmed genetically. Um, but we don't, unfortunately, tend to look into that level of detail in mainstream sort of allopathic medicine. So B vitamins are one. They're also involved in brain energy production. And I'm sure people are familiar with Chris Palmer's book called Brain Energy. Yes. And actually... <laughs> Yeah, so the current think to, thinking, so the up-to-date thinking is that actually your brain's ability to be able to access energy is absolutely crucial for mental health. And I'm a bit tired personally, and we'll come on to it, about the neurotransmitter theories of different mental illnesses that have dominated or predominated the thinking for so long. But actually a lot of it just comes down to how our mitochondria work. And I'm just smiling because other functional medicine doctors would say, yeah, mitochondrial health is everything and affects every chronic health condition that you can possibly think of, really. Um, so B vitamins, uh, zinc would be another really crucial one. So um, it's definitely more bioavailable in animal foods than plant foods. And there have been some studies showing that vegans in particular are more likely to be deficient in zinc. And you're more likely to become depressed if you're deficient in zinc. And it's also involved in serotonin synthesis and also activation of vitamin B6. So they, they all sort of work together. And I think there may also be studies showing that supplementing antidepressants with zinc has had favorable outcomes for some people. And also one study showing that zinc supplementation on its own had been beneficial in relation to depression. Uh, so that's an interesting one. And do you think we can get enough zinc if you've got a, you know, meat base, you know, taking enough protein in our diet? Because you mentioned something oh, yeah, really so important, which is, you know, a touchy topic when you come, you know, talk about vegan vegetarianism versus like a yeah. meat, predominant meat diet. And I see that a lot in clinic. It is mm -hmm. anxiety, depression and fatigue. And very much it's a vegetarian based diet, just not getting enough yeah. protein with what are your thoughts around that? I know we're sidetracking a bit there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I would have a very hard time to be able to recommend to anyone that I see clinically that I can't really think of a situation where I think it would be ideal to recommend a vegan diet or even a vegetarian diet purely because it can be very difficult to get essential nutrients such as zinc and vitamin B12. And lots of people are familiar with the vitamin B12 issue with vegan diets and they supplement, but I think less people are familiar with the issue of zinc. Mm. And it's certain, you know, animal foods are a rich source of zinc, and particularly, you know, muscle meats. And don't want to get into too much of this sort of nuance about organs versus muscles, but yeah, definitely it's it's not usually an issue. And I think that study 
that quoted a rate of 47% uh, zinc deficiency in the vegan population they looked at. That was versus about 10% in omnivores, so people who are having a mixed diet. Still, there was still a, a section of that group who had a zinc deficiency, but nowhere near as much as the vegan diet. Wow. Yeah, and oh gosh, number three, that would be DHA, or thinking about the omega-3 <laughs> fatty acids. Yeah. So, I mean, our brain is two thirds of it is fat, and about 20% of that, again, is DHA, so the specific form of omega-3 fatty acid. And again, that's very difficult to get in a vegan or vegetarian diet just because it doesn't exist in those foods. So it's a different form of omega-3 that comes in vegetarian foods known as ALA. And the body can convert some of that through to eventually become DHA, but it's a very poor conversion rate. So I believe it's somewhere in the region of about 5% of ALA that's taken in, in a vegan or vegetarian diet ends up ultimately converted to DHA, but, but it's absolutely essential for our brain development and for cell membrane fluidity in the brain. So basically for communication again within the brain. And we know, that, you know, it's really interesting when you start to look at the research literature, because there are certain populations such as children with ADHD that show altered levels of omega-3 fatty acid, fatty acids versus omega-6. And we know that over the last well, probably from the 1950s, since the introduction of seed oils, which are very high in an omega-6 fatty acid called linoleic acid. We know that the modern diets are just far too heavily filled with omega-6 fatty acids. And I suspect most people's omega-3 to omega-6 ratios are far from ideal. Absolutely. It's funny you should say that because we can do an omega-3 index here in Australia as a blood test, obviously privately paid. And nine times out of 10, it's always deficient so I've actually stopped doing it because yeah got to either look at diet look at supplementation to actually get your sources yeah I mean I, I think if there's one health change that people could make that could really make a big difference it would be getting seed oils or vegetable oils out of their diets because any sort of processed food these days just seems to be absolutely filled with the stuff and it was never really it's just not an ancestrally appropriate food I wouldn't even I would argue it's not even a food it shouldn't be looked at in that way it's a byproduct of industry essentially so yeah there to make profit we could have a whole conversation about that can we <laughs> yeah I know can we <laughs> really, it's a big a, rabbit hole to go down <laughs> yeah so bees zinc omega-3s yes and then oh gosh so not so much supplements but protein yeah. so I think having bioavailable protein mm. because most psychiatrists and most doctors don't tend to think about it, but where do we get our neurotransmitters from? And it's all manufactured from our food. So it's the proteins that are broken down and in particular amino acid tyrosine, for example, that is ultimately converted into dopamine and noradrenaline and those other neurotransmitters that are absolutely essential for us and particularly problematic, it seems, in ADHD. So we were just talking about that, so that just comes to mind. But I never cease to be amazed by the response you get, even from other professionals, when you try to suggest that what people eat is absolutely crucial in terms of their mental health and well-being. And I think, unfortunately, in allopathic medicine, none of us were trained in nutrition. And it's only really the people who had an interest in that who've decided to go on and pursue it further. But the average doctor just doesn't really have a clue from what I can tell about nutrition. And most psychiatrists, I think, would tell you they would just look very surprised if I was to tell them that, that food 
is absolutely essential and makes a huge difference through choices in terms of mental health. So yeah, it's a difficult. Absolutely. It still amazes me today, like even if I have colleagues who know what I'm doing, but have no interest in asking more. And it is still amazes me because it's just now I see it as crucial as part of the whole story. Taking a history is just crucial to know what you're eating and especially for mental health and you're, and you're spot on, you know, like tryptophans for serotonin, like it all comes from amino acids, like that's key. And I think you touched upon it. You really do not get enough protein if you're vegan or vegetarian. And I was just reading Paul Saladino's Carnival Code and it was a great picture there about bioavailability of protein meat versus a vegetarian diet and it's like 50% bioavailable so you're not starting on a great note anyway with a pure vegetarian and then you just think about the people who are taking proton pump inhibitors and those types of acid suppressing medications (laughs) yeah your mind just starts to boggle because you think how on earth is anyone supposed to be absorbing and getting extracting the nutrients and and actually extracted the bioavailable protein that may be in their diet and so it's just layer upon layer of foundational basics that I think a lot of people are getting wrong these days so a fairly poor processed food heavy diet combined with something like a a meprazole or another proton pump inhibitor and then you can end up just over a longer period a long relatively long period of time I suppose some people might present more quickly but just health deteriorates slowly and surely Absolutely. So I'm so glad you mentioned protein. And then the final sort of nutrient or element. I'm increasingly coming around to the view that there are many other nutrients that we wouldn't necessarily consider essential nutrients. But the ones I'm thinking of are sort of another type of protein or peptides called carnosine and carnitine and anserine and ubiquinone those kind of compounds or um, dipeptides that you find mostly in red meat because when you start to look into the research literature about what those actually do they're they're antioxidant they reduce oxidative stress at the level of neurons carnitine you know certain ones are involved in formation of myelin what i was just thinking there about carnitine is that there have been a few studies um showing links between carnitine deficiency and autism and i've actually come across people who've ended up following a very meat heavy carnivore type diet and people who've had long established diagnoses of autistic spectrum disorder and a few have approached me to tell me that their symptoms have vastly improved and once they converted to having a meat heavy diet and I suspect a lot of that has to do with these other antioxidant peptides that are contained within meat. I think there are many many more that we haven't even found and named (laughs) yet Um, but yeah, and the one thing um, each I love to add is magnesium. I just noticed so oh, yeah. deficient in magnesium. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think as standard, I would suggest to people to think about supplementing with magnesium. I, I particularly like my magnesium glycinate or bisglycinate just for a relaxation point of view. But then um, magnesium taurate. There's all there's so many different forms, and I think taurate's the only one that really crosses the blood brain barrier and gets into the brain. But uh, magnesium kind of benefits sort of systemically in the body it doesn't just have to be for the brain so so yeah it's terrible how deficient the modern day diet is even if you're even if you're 
um, really following an ideal diet, such as a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, you can still run into difficulties. Right, right. And so I'd love to sort of move on to talk about sugar and how it's linked to mental health, because that could be a simple change that can make a dramatic effect. And often people oh, are not yeah. just connecting the link of how much sugar they're taking and how it's affecting them. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Oh gosh, huge topics. <laughs> yeah. So beyond seed oils and sugar, I would say is the next most detrimental thing that people could consume in terms of their mental health. And unfortunately, that really translates into all carbohydrates because all carbohydrates, even if they're complex, your body digests down into simple sugars. And but essentially, too much sugar in the body is inflammatory. And we know that it sets off systemic inflammation in the body. And over a period of time, particularly if you're consuming a very carbohydrate heavy diet, um, your body will be repeatedly releasing insulin to try to deal with the, the blood glucose changes that you get after eating sugar. And particularly if you snack and have frequent meals, frequent snacks, and they're carbohydrate based, you can end up over a period of time entering into what we call well a high insulin state so you end up with hyperinsulinemia and eventually when you've had that for a while you end up with insulin resistance which is when cells in your body just become resistant to the action of insulin and we know that this happens in the brain as well and a huge amount of the research out there um, shows that alzheimer's in particular so dementia the vast majority of people have either pre-diabetes or um, end-stage in insulin resistance, which, which would be type 2 diabetes. But we know when you have insulin resistance in the brain, essentially your brain is unable to access energy. So level of glucose in your brain remains constantly proportionate to the amount of glucose in your bloodstream. And so your brain can end up swimming in glucose, but if your, your cells are insulin resistant, then the brain cells are unable to access the energy from the glucose that is there just because the insulin can't act properly. And that's when you start having cognitive symptoms and concentration difficulties. And that's the real beauty of adopting a ketogenic diet, because we know that ketone bodies, which are fat breakdown products, they can cross the blood brain barrier and enter the brain. And they provide an alternative, cleaner fuel source for the brain. And ketone bodies have many other special properties. So they are anti-inflammatory. Um, they can they can alter um, neurotransmitter pathways in a positive way. So although I've kind of mentioned, I'm not a huge fan of the monoamine hypothesis of depression. We do know that when you have inflammation in the body, there are certain pathways that, that get kicked out of balance and you can end up particularly with a, a deficit of GABA, which would be one of the main inhibitory relaxation neurotransmitters. And you can end up with too much glutamate, which is one of the main causes of agitation and anxiety and ketone bodies can help to regulate that pathway. Um, and of course, there's a knock-on effect on all the other neurotransmitters such as serotonin and melatonin that you need for sleep. And it gets all very complicated, but... That was actually a yes. summary. A brilliant two-minute summary. <laughs> okay. um, and a fantastic reminder about sugar. I think we can't... We should always be reminding ourselves about their sugar intakes. It's so easy to sort of creep in when you're stressed and anxious and depressed literally it's yes. like go to and it's just making that whole cycle worse and what I find as a GP it's dealing with that emotional connection to food going on that journey and it's just so awesome to hear from a psychiatrist the impact it has on mental health and whether that could be a motivator as well because 
food is just such a huge emotional connection. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, and it's because people get a serotonin hit after they have lots of carbohydrate foods and then a dopamine hit as well. And then we also know that sugar is addictive. And although the wider medical establishment doesn't necessarily accept that yet, there's very clear animal studies showing that, you know, rats, for example, who are addicted to cocaine, they will choose sugar over cocaine when both are freely available. Wow. That puts it into perspective. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, I don't know whether, I don't think everyone's an absolute sugar addict, but I personally am. And I just think it's very, we could pick up on it a lot better. So there's a lot of good, good work that's being done by people such as Bitten Johnson and then uh, other clinicians around the world. But I just think the prevalence is probably a lot higher than what, what we give credit for. Absolutely. And something to add, like once you tackle insulin resistance and, you know, go into ketogenic, it really switches off sugar cravings. It's just phenomenal. And you're not even thinking about it, but it's just going on that journey of just feeling better. But before we let you go, Rachel, I'd love to just quickly look at what was recently talked about in the last couple of months about the whole serotonin theory and discounting it in terms of relating to mental health. So I love your perspective on that. Yes. So I haven't been aware of anything in the last few months, but there might be different stuff in the news (laughs) for you over there. There was a paper published in 2022 by Professor Joanna Moncrief, who's a critical psychiatrist based down in London. And I follow a lot of her work. So I don't know if some of the news articles have been based on the back of that, or if there's another study that's come out that it's that um, one. You're thinking it is of, that one. Is yeah. it that one? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So really interesting paper. If if people want to go ahead and, and try to go through it all, it looks at all of the basic science, such as the original theory, serotonin theory, and the, a bit of the history of it when that came in, and then how that's been pushed over the years, coinciding with the development of SSRI antidepressants, particularly the sort of uh, 1990s, 2000s. And we know that overprescribing of antidepressants is an absolutely huge issue, certainly in the UK, but I suspect worldwide. But it's a very interesting paper. So they, they looked through studies, such as studies that were done on serotonin transporters, receptors, and then tryptophan depletion studies, and essentially conclude there's a lot of contradiction in the research and, and not a huge amount to really support that serotonin is is the main issue in depression and I think unfortunately your average person walking around looks at depression as a chemical imbalance and that's what many people have been saying all these years and obviously we have antidepressants that are very focused on serotonin receptors but actually in one of Joanna Moncrief's books she quotes quite a number of different studies and when they went back and looked at unpublished data as well as the published studies and then this gets into the the difficulties with the research evidence uh, base as well because we know that positive studies are more likely to be published and unfortunately there's a lot of interference uh, competing interests from big pharma but basically when they went back and looked at and I think there were four different review studies that compared antidepressant efficacy versus placebo and they all showed that antidepressants were slightly superior to placebo, but when you actually drilled down into the data, the degree of superiority was little to nothing. So it was equivalent to two points in the Hamilton depression rating scale. There's another scale that I 
we commonly use where I work called the CGI or the clinical global impressions. And to have even a mild improvement on that, that was calculated as being an eight point difference on the Hamilton depression rating scale. So essentially what they were saying was when you take all of the published and the unpublished data in relation to antidepressants, the difference is very minimal. And I'm not sure necessarily you'd be able to pick up if somebody had a two point improvement on a depression rating scale, would it be very obvious to them or to others? So yeah, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, And it's worth just bearing in mind, just because obviously now I just do all functional medicine and, you know, just bearing in mind, like that's the, that's the narrative that doctors have been speaking about. Oh, something's happening in your life. It's stressful. How about an antidepressant? But there's so much more we can do. And we've really got to bear that in mind. Thank you so much for your time, Rachel. Before I leave you, what's your hope for the future of psychiatry? Oh, gosh. So there is more research going on these days, and particularly in relation to ketogenic diets and a whole wide range of different psychiatric diagnoses. Just to say, personally, I think a ketogenic diet could, can help anyone really <laughs> with any sorts of mental health symptoms. So I'm not a huge fan of the diagnostic classification system because I think actually a lot of the underlying processes in the body that end up causing psychiatric symptoms, a lot of the different disorders we put them, categorize people into just have the same underlying mechanisms that are going on for them. They just present in a slightly different way. But I'm certainly encouraged by the the research that's going on worldwide now, looking into ketogenic diets for different psychiatric disorders. And I just hope for more of that and from for some good results to keep coming from, from those research studies. I don't know that I can be all that optimistic about allopathic medicine, being receptive to that, but hopefully over time um, there might be a bit of a shift that way. Certainly ketogenic diets have been used mainstream in the field of neurology now for treatment-resistant epilepsy for at least 100 years, so you would hope that eventually it might be able to, to break barriers in the mental health field as well. Amazing, Rachel. So where can people find you? Okay, so I'm probably most active on Instagram. So I am under the handle carnivore shrink on Instagram. I'm also doing some mental health coaching and with my colleague Ali Houston. So we have um, anyone can find us at the website metsci.com. So it stands for metabolic psychiatry, but metsci.com. And then I will shortly be um, taking on some private work as well. So I will put links in my Instagram to any new websites coming. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Rachel. This has been phenomenal and it's going to help so many people just think differently about mental health. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me and, and just for covering this topic. It's so important. Remember that this is general advice only. Please see your healthcare professional for more information. So what's your take-home message today? Remember, it's all about progress and not perfection. And are you suffering from stress? Visit the Usawa Learning Hub on usawa.com.au for more resources on how to de-stress, re-energize and reclaim your health. Enjoy the journey.